Human history, like a river, will keep moving forward with moments of both calm waters and huge waves. We have before us the opportunity to forge a new world order. The problem with modern days unipolarity is precisely that. The West is leading Ukraine down the Primrose Path. We don't have enough tanks, we don't have enough vessels, we don't have enough planes. To bring chip productions here to the U.S. This is multipolarity, charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. Okay, folks, let's get started. Uh, welcome to this space. It was originally going to be hosted on the uh, multipolarity Twitter accounts, but unfortunately, there are one or two technical problems with that on Tuesday. Some of you might have been around to witness that. We cut out after about uh, three or maybe five minutes, and uh, we've had to reschedule for tonight on my uh, personal account. My name is uh, Andy Collingwood. I'm joined tonight by Philip Pilkington and perhaps the infamous Tinksorg even as well. We are going to discuss tonight um, or try to create at least an intellectual framework to think about the concept of multipolarity. Uh, we're going to talk about um, the transition from a unipolar world order to a multipolar world order. We're going to think about what a unipolar world order is, what a multipolar world order is, what it would look like, how the transition's going to take place, how it's un uh, unfolding at the moment, and what exactly are the consequences going to be? Um, how is it going to affect economics? How is it going to affect domestic political economies? How is it going to affect international relations? Uh, are we going to see war, famine, pestilence, and uh, the, uh, the other horsemen of the apocalypse, or is it going to be a little bit smoother than that? Um, so I, th I think just very briefly before I invite uh, Philip Pilkington, uh, who is my co-host on the Multipolarity podcast and is also an excellent writer on economics for uh, primarily, I believe, unheard.com, but also writes for the uh, American Conservative and uh, Spectator and The Critic and uh, several other August uh, outlets. I would just like to begin with a brief definition of what a world order is, what a unipolar world order is, and what a multipolar world order is, and even what a great power is, just so that we're all singing off the same hymn sheet. So briefly, a unipolar world order is a world order in which there's only one great power in the system of that world order. The best example that I can think of, perhaps the only example I can think of, is between the years 1991, when the Soviet Union uh, dissolved, and about 2008, 2009, maybe, maybe a bit later even, uh, but anyway, that period of time when the United States was really the, the, the world's only great power. It, it, it dominated and therefore the world system uh, was created by, policed by, uh, designed by it, the United States. It was the only power in the system. So it was a unipolar world order. There was one pole. A bipolar world order is something like that which we had during the Cold War, in which there were two great powers in the system. There was the Soviet Union and the United States, and the world was bipolar. There were two poles to the world order. 
a multipolar world order is something that we haven't seen since at least 1942, 44, maybe, uh, but perhaps even before that. And a, and, a, and a multipolar world order is where there were multiple great powers in the system. So, for instance, before the Second World War, you had Japan, you had Germany, you had Great Britain, you had the United States, you had the Soviet Union, and in theory you had France. There were six great powers in the system. Before the First World War, you had a similar situation. We had the Ottoman Empire, the, the Russian Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the German Empire, the French Empire, the British Empire, and also the United States. There were seven powers in the system. So that was quite a lot, but Right now, I think there are probably three great powers in the system. So we have a multipolar world order, although a nascent multipolar world order, and an unbalanced multipolar world order. Why is it unbalanced and what is a great power? Well, a great power, I think, there's a lot of debate over what is and what isn't a great power, but the best description I heard, I think, came from an old John Mearsheimer lecture, or Mearsheimer, in which he said that the easiest way to think about what a great power is, is that a great power is a, a, a nation or a block of nations, a very tight block of nations, that would be extremely difficult for any other country to beat. It would cause extreme pain and extreme difficulty. So, for instance, I think in the current system, there's Russia, China, and the United States. But even though Russia is the weakest of those three great powers. I think the last 18 months has probably proven that Russia is a great power. It stood up to perhaps the harshest array of sanctions in history, certainly since the Second World War. Um, uh, NATO and the West and even some uh, Asian countries have poured weapons into the Ukrainians and still Russia hasn't collapsed. It's still there. It's still, you know, at, at the very least uh, at par with uh, Ukraine at the moment. So I think it's probably, you know, qualified as a, a, a as a world power, but it's certainly the weakest. It's, it's, it's probably weaker than the United States. It's probably weaker than China. I think most people would agree with that. So we have this um, incoherent, nascent, multipolar world order where transitioning from a unipolar world order. Philip Pilkington, why don't you kick us off and just give us a kind of an overview of how this transition is taking place and in a very general sense, what you think is happening at the moment and, and, and what do you think are the, are, are the immediate consequences and causes of this? Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Um, I'm glad you didn't bring up the events in Africa because clearly yesterday we got thrown off by the Niger Secret Service. So it's a good thing you didn't bring that up again. Yeah, the, the, the <laughs> extremely powerful uh, Niger KGB. That's right. Um, so we won't be talking about Africa today. Anyway, um, so I think that's a pretty good overview. Um, I think it's kind of worth teasing out maybe a little bit. I can't do much better than that as an overview. But it's interesting to kind of think what the forces at work that drive this kind of thing are. I mean, in the past, I think you referenced kind of the 19th century as a, as a multipolar, um, multipolar example um, the, in order to be a power in the 19th century, all you needed was a fairly decent military. And it wasn't really that hard to get a fairly decent military. Um, it was pretty low tech. There weren't, um, beyond ships, beyond battleships, there weren't very high capital intensive 
spending that you needed to do. You just needed a well-trained force um, and you needed guns. Now, at the same time, it was harder to raise taxes to achieve that because income taxes weren't in place, for example. Um, most, of your tar- most of your taxes were, were from tariffs in the 19th century. So it was a little bit more difficult, although you could finance uh, through debt issuance. Obviously, the Napoleonic Wars were financed through debt issuance on both sides. And one side collapsed and the other didn't. But anyway, um, so it's, a, it's an interesting question what determines it. I mean, I think a really good, good way of thinking about it is actually Russia, because as you said, it's the weakest of the powers, but it is clearly a power. I mean, it's very hard to deny at this point. Um, obviously, um, economic power is not determining, not raw economic power is not determining Russia, uh, Russia's power, because um, Russia is about, has about, on a purchasing power parity basis, an economy the size of Germany, and Germany is clearly not a great power. Even the EU is not clearly a great power, although it may move there. Um, so what determines it? In the case of Russia, it seems to be a mix, um, and maybe this is something to tell us about what, what great power conflict or great power power, in a sense, in the 21st century is going to look like. It's not so much what you've got, although what you've got is important. It's also the kind of way you strategically deploy what you've got. So Russia gives a fairly good example of an economy that's not enormous. Now, it's a large economy, but it's not enormous. And yet they're able to have much more impact, I would say, in the world than Germany. Um, So they're clearly deploying things um, strategically, as it were. So so what is it that gives them the status? Okay, so they have a reasonably big economy. It's, it's a, as I said, the size of Germany, so it's not tiny. Um, they clearly have some pretty, a pretty powerful military at this stage. Maybe they didn't prior to the war, but they do now. Um, and they seem to have very good diplomatic contacts. I think that's really important. And that's left over, effectively, from the Soviet days, as best I can understand it. So it, it shows that you can be a player in the emerging multipolar world without having the biggest economy in the world, without having the biggest military in the world, or without having the best diplomatic relations in the world. Um, The other powers, China is, um, I mean, has a large military, but it's not known for its military prowess. Now, it is a very large military, and it seems fairly well equipped. Um, But it's not really that that gives China the edge, at least not now. That may change, but not now. It's the economic way And then America has a combination of what Russia has, uh, you know, a highly effective uh, political elite. It has the potential to have a large military. It has a reasonably large economy, uh, a little bit bigger than Germany's, I think. Um, so, yeah, these things aren't cast in stone. I think one of the things that you might be useful in discussing, Philip, is why we've switched from a, a, a unipolar to a multipolar world order. Like, you, you know, what, what is the history that's brought us here? Because from my point of view, more interested in the international relations and the grand strategy side of things, I can see very clearly that what's happened is that um, when the United States was a, was the, the unipolar uh, power within the global system, there was nobody really to, there was no other great power to press against it, to punish it for mistakes, to restrain its actions. And because of that, its own ideology became more important than security. During the Cold War, security was the primary concern. 
when Soviet tanks rolled into Budapest in 1956, the U.S. didn't lift a finger. When likewise it happened in uh, Czechoslovakia in 68, the U.S. didn't lift a finger. That was because despite the fact that the U.S. was just as democratic and just as interested in democracy and freedom as it is now, security took precedence because there was another great power in the system, the Soviet Union. However, once there was a unipolar moment, that was removed. So there was nobody to constrain the U.S., there was nobody really to worry about. And that meant Washington's own pathologies and the U.S.'s own kind of um, what I think Tinksorg might call it, it's kind of its, its vitality, its soul as a nation, started to take precedence over security issues, over security competition, and there was nobody really to punish its mistakes. Get involved in a complete debacle in the Middle East, no problem. That doesn't affect us really. Um, you know, do the same in Libya, no problem. That doesn't affect us really. It, it, you know, there's, I mean, and, and those are just the big obvious mistakes, right? Uh, there was countless other much smaller ones as well. And because there was nobody there to punish them, that kind of ideologically driven uh, viewpoint, that, that ideologically driven uh, foreign policy and grand strategy uh, really took hold and took over everything and, and, uh, and gained a great deal of you know, bureaucratic inertia where it couldn't be shifted, even once it was clear that the world was becoming multipolar. And I think what that did essentially is it, caused the U.S. to make a range of mistakes. It um, caused other great powers to start, or, or the potential great powers, to start getting extremely nervous about the U.S.'s behavior. Could we be next? They're going too far. They're, you know, they're, they're breaking the rules. They're destabilizing things, and, and it caused them to, to change. And in addition to that, of course, that ideology itself especially when it comes to China, fueled the growth of the Chinese economy, which in turn fueled the growth of China's um, uh, capacity as a power until it became, you know, almost, I think maybe not quite yet, but on the way to being the equal of the US. Um, but from an, I mean, that's my view from an international relations grand strategy perspective, What's your view from a kind of more economics perspective? Yeah, I mean, I just add to that not much on, in, on the foreign policy side, but um, Iraq wasn't America's first mistake. Uh, Vietnam was their first mistake. And that'll tie into what I'm about to say. Um, Vietnam was pursued not under what we might call a neoconservative interventionist framing of the world. It was, it was, um, it was an outgrowth of what you might call you might even call it a cancerous outgrowth of the containment doctrine, which was quite um, otherwise quite successful, obviously, because um, I won't say the U.S. won the, the Cold War, but the Soviet Union certainly lost. Um, so that's it's not the first time they've made that mistake. Uh, Vietnam obviously was was the first. But from an economic point of view, I mean, I think it pretty much we don't want to rehash old material. I think effectively the mistakes we made, we highlighted in our recent de-dollarization episode. And the kind of TLDR version of that is that um, the post-World War II um, system began to unravel, which was founded in 1944, came into existence, I think, really 1949 or 1948. And it started to unravel because of the Vietnam War, because they were overspending on the Vietnam War. And the, 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 uh, the French uh, requested gold under the Bretton Woods system they could. 
And um, the 70s were a crisis period. They kind of got things back on track in the 80s. As you say, they're still fighting the Cold War at that point. So that kind of like constrains foreign policy in a sense. And then, then, they, then America goes into the 90s thinking that they, you know, ruled the world economically and geopolitically. Now, geopolitically, they did. But, you know, to think that the world would never change and, you know, you're at the end of history, as Francis Fukuyama said, I mean, that's just not prudent from a historical point of view. I mean, anyone who says that we've reached the pinnacle of everything, like, okay, <laughs> like history moves on, like, stop looking at your reflection in the, in the river and narcissist. But, um, but even beyond that, you know, uh, they also thought that their economy was really strong and, and, and they mistook the Clinton boom, which was the first of the financial bubbles, effectively. It was the dot-com bubble. And they, they mistook that for some sort of world-changing economic event, which it was not. Uh, the weaknesses were still there from the 70s. So, um, and now we're experiencing the reality of that because the, the, the geopolitical order and the economic order are tied up with each other. And nothing shows that better than dollar hegemony, which again, I'd refer people to our de-dollarization episode. And all that's kind of unwinding now. And it's becoming very, very unclear what happens next. The economic weaknesses now are quite bad. The trade deficits are very large. The economies are overly financialized. Um, in, my, in my opinion, in the next 18 months, we're going to see another bubble collapse. But, you know, we'll see. But even if we don't, we've got stagnation. I mean, the U.S. is, is growing a little bit better than Europe and uh, the United Kingdom, but not much. It's 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 in a fairly stagnant place. And also, if Europe starts to deindustrialize, which is already happening, I think the the, the dry up in trade with America is going to pr- produce enormous economic problems. Last time, Europe collapsed in a sense. I'm not saying deindustrialization will collapse Europe. It's not quite the same process, but it will drag it down into a swamp. And last time we saw something like that was in the 1920s, and we got the Great Depression and trade collapsed, and protectionist barriers went up, Smoot-Hawley and all this kind of thing. So it's a very, it's a very fragile moment at the moment, I'd say. Well, I think that's an interesting point because, you know, getting on to the consequences of the shift from a, from a unipolar system to a multipolar system, um, the last time that we had a big shift in the, <clears throat> in the world order and the the number of powers within the system and the individual, which individual powers themselves were within that system was really a period between about uh, 1970, 1918 and 1945. And this period, uh, you know, really started with the Spanish flu. Um, You know, then you had kind of a terrible collapse of the Ottoman empire, which involved, um, ethnic cleansing on a huge level, genocide, uh, massive amounts of, um, of of death and injury and economic dislocation. Um, you also had um, the collapse of uh, the German Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. You, you had the collapse of the Russian Empire and the rise of Bolshevism, and then the Russian Civil War, and then wars in Eastern Europe between the Soviets and the Poles, and the and the Soviets and the uh, nascent some of the nascent um, uh, groups that claimed sovereignty over Ukraine. Um, then after that, you had the um, the Great Depression, 
which caused a kind of economic hardship that I think is extraordinarily difficult for us to even comprehend. And then you had another huge conflagration uh, between great powers to basically decide and finalize um, the system that was going to replace the pre-1914 system. And, you know, people think that the next war was the, the Second World War. Uh, but throughout the 1930s, you had a, a, a huge number of absolutely horrific and bloodthirsty wars. I mean, there was the, the, the wars in South America that claimed, you know, something insane, like 6% of the entire Paraguayan population. For example, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of smiling. It, 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 it's not funny, but it's like people forget that there were such horrific things happen. You had uh, the rise of fascism in Europe and Mussolini's adventures in Abyssinia, which is now Ethiopia, which, you know, when um, poisoned gas was used, for example, there was the Spanish Civil War. Um, there were a whole range of wars in Eastern Europe, as I say, from like full scale industrial wars that were horrible to horrific, I should say, to um, to uh, kind of border skirmishes. Uh, you had ethnic cleansing, you had genocide. I mean, it was a really bad period. As I say, you also had a pandemic which killed <clears throat> tens of millions of people. Um, that time it was concentrated among the young and the fit rather than the old and infirm like this time. And you also had the perhaps the greatest and sharpest economic collapse in recorded economic history. What about this time, Philip Pilkington? I mean, does that sound a bit bleak? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think so. And I, I, I think it's a bit bleak because the main shifts this time um, probably aren't going to be military. Now, I know that um, that you might disagree with me on that, and uh, our friend Tinksorg, who's on here, might disagree with me on that too. But the military aspect seems to me to be limited and inherently limited due to the nature of the weapon systems that we have today, basically due to nuclear weapons. I mean, that stops things from escalating past a certain point, not saying it's impossible. We could have nuclear war. I mean, people don't talk about it too much, but I think we're closer to nuclear war today than we've ever been. And Agreed. I think, yeah, I think, um, I think the guys who set the doomsday clock say the same thing. The, the, the risks currently now, I think, are beyond Cuban Missile Crisis. So I'm not, I'm not uh, writing that off. I'm just saying that you can't have World War III past a certain point. It's just not possible. And I think even conventional conflict can only go to a certain limit. Uh, in terms of land conflict, we're seeing that limit in Ukraine. I mean, that's just physically the reality. That's as big as it can go. Physically can't go any bigger because the next step will be tactical nuclear weapons. And in and in um, in East Asia, I think. Well, I mean, um, Philip, can I just pull you up on that for a second? I'm sorry to stop you mid-flow, but I think the first thing I would say is that you and I, and I think most sensible people, would think that. And I'll get onto a second point. So if you just bear with me, you and I, and most sensible people, would think that nuclear war would be so horrific, so destructive, so catastrophic, not just for the nations involved, but for humanity as a whole, but especially for the nations involved. It, it would essentially be, say, be saying, everybody's going to be a loser, right? Like, like we're going to lose, you're going to lose, which is going to blow the whole thing up, right? But that doesn't mean... I mean, that's not a theoretical limit. That's just a human nature limit. And, and, and the problem that I've got with that is human nature during war, especially when it's existential war, especially when it involves great powers, especially when it involves industrial powers, they tend, without outside 
um, limits placed upon them, which great powers by definition don't have, or, or, or it's very hard to, they tend to have, you know, they tend to press every single button and every single weapon that they can uh, before they concede defeat. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is that in Ukraine, for example, it's entirely, um, it's entirely uh, comprehensible or, 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 or imaginable that this could stay the same in terms of its kind of nuclear escalation level, i.e. a kind of a regional, conventional, but industrial war. It, it could stay at that level, but it could be much more destructive and much more... De- I mean, it's it's possible to imagine, say, the Russians saying, right, we've had enough of this. You know, we're going to mobilize, like, 1.2 million more men. We're going to put the whole economy on a full war footing. Uh, we're going to devote... 15% of GDP to this process and we're going to finish this off and it's possible that the United States says no you're not, we're not going to allow that to happen and it gets involved I mean, it, it, it you know without it going nuclear, you could get that sort of situation which would be an order of magnitude more destructive and more and it, you know, you get into the potential for war in the South China Sea between the US and um and uh, China, and, you know, six missiles, can, or, or, I don't know, 60 missiles can kill 40,000 men in eight minutes, right? Because they can destroy a carrier group. So, uh, I mean, it could be even more destructive than it is now, right? Well, I was gonna, uh, let's get back to the, say, China Sea one, because it's, it's a completely different situation. Um, the, could the Ukraine war escalate regionally into Poland or something, Lithuania or something like that? I mean, it seems to me only past a certain point because they're NATO members, right? I mean, I, I, I could imagine maybe Poland or Lithuania sending troops into Western Ukraine and that causing problems. But the moment that a NATO member gets involved, you know, you're really, really close to nuclear war at that point. And so I just don't, I mean, I, I personally don't think the United States would allow that. Uh, they're not. They're not willing to risk their their homeland for a war in Central and Eastern Europe. I I just really think that, and maybe I'm proved wrong. I mean, I think that's a sensible idea. But uh, uh, you know, I look at people like, say, Victoria Newland, who's now second in command in the State Department and seems to have a great deal of power. And I wonder whether she would say, no, 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 we can escalate because Russia will back down. Well, it's not really. Up, that- it's not really up to Victoria. <laughs> no, no, I understand that, but I mean, do you, I mean, do you think that Biden has a, or, or I, I mean, do you think it's possible that a, a, a powerful enough group within uh, the U.S. administration could kind of enforce that kind of quite gung ho uh, aggressive view on the present uh, administration as a whole? I mean, I, I think it's theoretically. Po- I'm not saying it's the most likely. But I think it's theoretically possible, right? I, I, no, I think that I think the U.S. have redlined NATO. They've completely redlined NATO, and sensibly so. Like, look, no, you're you're not going to find another foreign policy show uh, that has greater criticisms of the U.S. <laughs> Western uh, stances on, on <laughs> yeah, economics or true. foreign policy than here. But look, they they drew a red line at the beginning of this whole show and, and they haven't crossed it and they've shown no inclination to cross it. People know what nuclear war is. It'll be very hard to get to that point. But to move on to the, um, I mean, that's just an opinion. Maybe I'm wrong. But, um, but if I'm correct, look, the point is that if I'm wrong, we're all dead. So it doesn't matter because the world, the, there won't be a world order to shake up anymore. Once you get to nuclear war, it's, it's over. We're going back to the caves, okay? 
So the point is that you can only escalate to a certain point without having a nuclear war. And that's, that's why I'm making the case that I don't think that the big changes here will be driven by military conflict. I think it'll be economic conflict, uh, um, uh, conflict, or not even conflict, but competition. I mean, that will be a lot better. That will be a better outcome if we can just have economic competition rather than conflict, which is what we talk about in the show a lot. And then in terms of the say, China Sea thing, well, it's what you say. If a war kicks off there, that could happen without going nuclear. I have no doubt about that. Now, it could go nuclear, so it'll be very dangerous. But it could happen without going nuclear, potentially. But it will be over in days. I mean, it would literally just be missiles flying everywhere and a bunch of stuff sunk. And then everyone would count their dead at the end of the day. And it would almost like, it would be like a boxing match where the referee has to decide who wins. It would be ridiculous. It would be completely bizarre conflict because there wouldn't be any clear territorial gains or anything. It would be completely strange. It would almost be like a video game. So, but my only point is that you can only get to a certain level of conflict with nuclear weapons in place. And so conflict, to my mind, isn't going to be the main determinant of what emerges in the next hundred years. Unless it's World War III, but then forget about it. There won't be any more Twitter spaces because we'll be building our fire in our cave or whatever. So I suppose great power, con- I mean, you could argue that great power conflict like that is unlikely to be the determinant. I kind of go back to like the early 1900s when people were saying, people, a lot of people forget that this is actually the second great era of globalization. There was a previous era of globalization driven by um, steam-powered ships and railways and telegrams and, and, and radio and all of that kind of stuff. And, and that ended in 1914. And before 1914, in fact, almost right up to 19, almost right up to August 1914, the general assumption was that the great powers wouldn't go to war because they were so interlinked economically through this process of globalization that it would lead to economic catastrophe. So no matter what their winnings were at the end of this war, the the cost would be too high. And that was before they understood the implications of full industrial war, which they didn't. That was just based on the economic implications. So, you know, people who contend that you know, we can't go to war because things are too interlinked and the economic costs would be too high. Well, eh, we've done this before and there's nothing stopping us doing it again. We think we're wiser, but I see nothing about the human race or, or, or governments that suggests they're wiser, that they're any better at dealing with crises than they were 100 years ago, um, any of that. But there's also, of course, Philip, lower-level war. So, you know, we've talked on the Multipolarity podcast before about the increasing uh, great power competition in the Sahel and in sub-Saharan Africa as a whole. The U.S. has been running a kind of 20, 25-year campaign there that very few people know know about. It involves uh, special forces, surgical strikes using um, air power and also special forces. It involves training uh, soldiers in the region. It involves international aid. Uh, it involves intelligence community operations. But now you've also got the introduction of China. And it seems increasingly, if you read, if you believe what you read in the press, um, the Russian Federation as well. Um, so perhaps we, you know, we could see uh, greater instability and greater, at least potential for conflict within the developing world or, or outside the great powers. I mean, is that or, or maybe even regional conflicts. I mean, we've talked about <clears throat> the, excuse me, 
we've talked about the fact that the Falklands, the Falkland Islands, which are British sovereign territory, but which are claimed by Argentina and over which the United Kingdom and Argentina fought a war in the early 1980s, we've spoke about the fact that they could be back on the table. It's also possible to imagine Cyprus coming back on the table or some islands in the Aegean coming back on the table. So what I'm thinking of, maybe there's going to be no great power kind of total war, but perhaps we're going to see an increase in um, regional conflicts. We're going to see an increase in uh, full-blown wars in the developing world. Yeah, well, I think this is just undeniable. I mean, we're 18 months out from the Ukraine conflict, and Africa's already changing. I mean, it's crazy how fast this stuff is happening. I'm surprised at how fast it's happening. But I suppose, I think you've pointed out on the past, either on the podcast or in private, that that this is often what we see. When, when a chain of events starts, it goes really, really fast in geopolitical space. And so we're already seeing that. We're, I mean, you've just alluded to two stories. Obviously, Africa, everyone's watching it, so they vaguely know what's going on there. But if to recall Argentina, you know, the EU is backing Argentina on the naming of the islands. Like, these are huge shifts. Now, there probably will be a lot of conflict in Africa, coups and possibly civil wars and so on. Probably isn't going to be conflict over Argentina. It'll probably be a diplomatic tete-a-tete. Um, between Britain and pretty much everybody else, which Britain will probably lose, frankly. Um, but you know that the 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 idea that there'll be more conflict and change, I think, is 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 not it's not controversial on multipolarity. It's the premise of the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. So on the idea of conflict and change, let's move it from the military sphere to the economic sphere. The uh, w- there are two trends that are happening here. I think the first trend is that the world was getting increasingly unbalanced. Certainly trade balances were way out of whack. Um, Some countries running huge surpluses, others obviously running huge deficits, as it must be. Um, And an increasing desire to look at the way that the international trade system works, albeit pushing up against uh, a great deal of inertia. Um, within that same argument, I think there are also social issues within Western economies. There's a, an increasing understanding that there's a, a, a large degree, perhaps as large as there's been since the 1920s or 30s, uh, of, of, of gap between rich and poor. There's been a broad-scale deindustrialization. It really feels that um, certainly the European economies, but to a certain degree the U.S. as well, um, that you know they really feel stuck in the mud, low productivity, a large number of people on you know pretty thankless, dull, low productivity, low wage jobs, a large gap between rich and poor, and generally the idea that the 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 the, the system of trade we've got the 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 version of globalization that we got hasn't really worked out, and certainly hasn't worked out for the West. In addition to that, there's a second trend which is as great power conflict heats up, increasingly, as I think you first pointed out, I thought this was a a fantastic insight. It's it's one of those very simple and obvious insights where you kind of slap your head and think, why didn't I think of that? But you pointed out that increasingly, as great power conflict heats up, as the world changes, geopolitics is going to take precedence over macroeconomics. So macroeconomics is increasingly... macroeconomic policy is increasingly going to be driven by geostrategy. And the reverse is kind of true in a way that geostrategy 
is also going to be driven to a certain degree by macroeconomic considerations and the changes needed for macroeconomic considerations. Do you want to kind of comment on those two streams? I know those are two quite big subjects to deal with in one. And then after you've done that, we'll start inviting uh, people to talk from the floor. Yeah, so on the, on the question of the economic stability of what you might call the West, broadly considered, you know, Australia, Japan, South Korea, all that, um, uh, you know, although I might be not a huge doomer on the, on the war front, although open to being proved wrong about that, but we won't be here to debate it, um, I am a bit of a doomer on the economics front. And the reason is what I alluded to earlier, that the structural problems, I mean, you've just kind of said some of it as well about income inequality, and that, the structural problems in the Western economies are really, really bad. And I mean, like seven years ago or eight years ago, I got involved in like policy discussions, mainly in America. A lot of them were, were related to industrial policy before it was cool, I guess. And before like the people promoting it started promoting trade, trade wars, which are crazy and counterproductive. So, um, and at that time, me and all the other people that were discussing it at the time, mainly around the American Affairs Journal, thought the problems here are so huge. Like the more you look at it from the trade deficit to the dearth of engineering talent in many of these countries, just rebuilding basic industries, because that's what we're going to have to do, just to go off-piste a little bit. The recent germanium and gallium bans show that like, you need, an, if you want to keep all this stuff domestic, you need an aluminium and zinc production industry, big, heavy industry, in order to produce components domestically to make microchips. That's how integrated uh, economies are. So we knew how big these problems were. And, and my mindset of it always was, as a betting man, would I bet that we can achieve all these things through government policy, getting it all together, focusing on it? As a betting man, probably not. It was probably 60-40. And 60 was, we won't figure it out. And now we're having to do it at a massively accelerated pace. We're having to have these debates, get the policies all in place, and get everything together, and also at the same time manage geopolitical imbalances, which we haven't seen, I mean, since 1945, effectively, and which it's not clear that we're... So on that front, I am kind of pessimistic, because the, the problems themselves, the structural problems, which are industrial decline, trade deficits, overly financialized economies reliant on housing boom-bust cycles and so on, you know, the whole nine yards, income inequality, all of it's, by the way, tied together. You can draw, you can draw a conspiracy board where everything's connected, and it's not a conspiracy board, it's just like the macroeconomic structure of the economy. Um, so with all that, having to deal with that was, was a huge burden free multipolarity, accelerated multipolarity, if you want to call it that. And now with accelerated multipolarity, I, I am quite pessimistic that we can figure it out. Now, we still have to try. Otherwise, we wouldn't bother with the podcast. <laughs> like, I just like go and try and short currencies or something. <laughs> but we have to try. But, but it's such a huge burden. It's going to have to be done very quick. And we're going to have to completely change skill sets of elites and everything, of even the people who go to university. They're going to have to stop becoming frankly, public relations people and journalists, and they're going to have to start becoming engineers and so on. And economists, by the way. We don't need as many economists. We need those people to become engineers. So it's a huge undertaking. I mean, that's my feeling. 
Right. Well, after you've put both yourself and myself out of a job, uh, Philip, uh, I think we should open this up to the floor. Um, I'd like to say that we welcome any questions. Just put in a speaker request. Once I've accepted it, raise your hand, you know, press the little emoji button and get your hand raised, and I will invite you in to ask your question. Um, these questions are you and comments are usually excellent. Uh, I would remind everybody that we are recording this, uh, just so that you know. Um, but anyway, um, the first person I would like to ask is Edmund Wilson. What do you have to say, sir? Hi, thanks for this space. This is really intriguing, and I've not been in a Twitter space like this talking about not just geopolitics, but also the kind of economics of geopolitics. So I appreciate what you've both said. Well, you should listen to our podcast every week, Edmund. Yes, I should. Um, I, I, I think one thing I want to ask is, well, I, I guess in some ways the conversation reminds me of kind of um, figures like John Mersheimer and Helen Thompson. Uh, Helen Thompson at Cambridge and John Mersheimer at Chicago, kind of the economics and the geopolitics of what's going on today. Uh, I always wondered what a conversation between the two would be like. So perhaps this podcast is just that. And I guess my, my question is this, um, So, because there's not much time, I'll be very specific. Uh, when it comes to the rise of China, uh, what do you think is going to be the focus of that rivalry, competition or conflict? And do you think it is plausible that uh, Taiwan might be a bit of a distraction and China might have its sights elsewhere for instance, on a blockade of the Strait of Malacca before the 2024 elections. Philip Pilkinson. I can't speak to Chinese foreign policy because nobody knows. But um, the on the economic front, well, it's up to us. I think China have made very clear that it's up to us. If we want to engage in economic warfare, doing sanctions, tra uh, chip bans, um, uh, trade tariffs and so on, China are willing to fight that battle. We, we covered it on the podcast a few weeks ago. They've retooled their entire government apparatus for a trade war. And they said, if you guys want to push the button, we'll push the button. The first shot in that trade war is the restrictions that came in, into place two days ago on gallium and germanium, which are core elements that are needed in microchip and electronic and military hardware um, in order to make those things. Those bans are now in place. Those, they're not bans, but they're export rest restrictions. The prices have gone up on those elements. And if you're familiar with the industry at all, people in it are a little bit rattled. So if we want to have a trade war with China, they'll fight. In my opinion, we will lose that trade war because we run trade deficits with China. They run trade surpluses on us. They are more, we are more reliant on them than they are on us. Now, if we opt for the more competitive model, where we say we're going to go all hands on deck and try and compete with China, that might work. Now, it can't be the type of competition, quote unquote, that we've seen since the 90s, which is what I would call nihilistic free trade, where you just pull down, pull down the drawbridges and just let everything flow. That's been a disaster. But managed competition might be viable. That might be industrial policy, for example. But it's up to us. It's up to us how we manage the, the China relationship. It's, it's, it's going to be more so us in the driving seat than China in the driving seat. And I think that's becoming increasingly um, clear. And I'd actually say that is more worth focusing on than speculating about what China might do next. Because that speculation is just speculation. Whereas the economic structure that we see in both places is very obvious. 
And the rules of the game have become very obvious in the last six months. So that's something we can, in a sense, calculate and respond to. But what about expelling China from the WTO? Is that plausible? But what, I mean, to achieve what? Well, basically to achieve uh, some of the, well, I mean, Alexander Dugan thinks it's worth breaking up China ultimately, isolating it from the world's economy until it denuclearizes, demilitarizes, and if necessary, deterritorializes. Because the rise of China is like the rise of Germany. It will lead to world war if China continues to rise. This is why John Mersheim says China cannot rise peacefully. If we let China continue to rise, it will blockade the Strait of Malacca and we will have a third world war. So but, but I, I wait, 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 you didn't answer the question. This. What would kicking them out of the World Trade Organization achieve? Well, it was an idea that Ye proposed back in December. And I think it sounds quite plausible because it's the first step towards escalating the trade war Trump started, basically but, forcing China's hand. But I'm saying we'd lose the trade war, if you want my opinion on it. I, I, I understand that. I think the American economy is stronger than... Um, people are making out. Uh, I think the underlying strength of the American economy is, is quite, it's quite resilient overall. I think China is an upstart. It's much more unclear what China's economy is going to look like. And that instability might be one factor behind its military expansion, which it's already started through the South China Sea. Well, well I would say... I, 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 comment, not a question, but thank you. Well, I, I, I mean, I think... I mean, just... I'm, I'm, I'm going to call is a question. in... The, should we, I mean, not, I, should we isolate China from the world economy? Should we do that? Well, I don't think we can. I, I mean, I think Philip's point is that we can't. I, like, I think it, we definitely it, uh, can. We definitely well, 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 can. Of course well, we well, can. Well, <laughs> well, well, first of all, you've got to ask who's we. I mean, it's a bit like, I, I mean, do, do you remember the famous, uh, do you remember the famous uh, British newspaper headline, uh, Fog in Channel, Continent Cut Off, right? So... It, 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 you know, America saying, right, we're going to isolate China from the world economy. Well, how can America, I, I mean, America hasn't even been able, hasn't been able to even isolate Russia from the world economy. Now, Russia yeah. is a, a, a commodity superpower, but China is like, you know, Russia times what, 10, 20 in terms of economic size. The US is reliant on China for things like, you know, the, the inputs to create every single high tech thing that is in the U.S. economy. It's reliant on it for things like capital goods, which are which are things that make other things, right? It's like the machinery that makes other stuff. Totally reliant on it for that. It's reliant on it for things like medicines and antibiotics even. I mean, like, you, you can go down the list here and say, like, like, well, if we cut off China from the world economy, then then what? Relocate then, the production lines, make alliances with India. Yeah, but that's Vietnam, not, I mean, you can't, I mean, you can yeah, but you can't do that at the snap of a finger. I mean, that, I mean that. I mean that process. You can do that process if you want, but that's that would literally take like decades. That's something that's not measured in years; it's measured in decades. And as that's going on, China is also working as well. And because, I mean, if you look at a map, I'm sure you've seen maps. If you look at a map of of, of nations' main trading partners, like China is the major trading partner of most countries in the world. The U.S. is not anymore, um, and as you're trying to reshore and friendshore and, and 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 all the rest of it, and and send plants to Vietnam, for example, China's also working. For for example, Foxconn, which is famous for making iPhones, I'm not sure if it still does, but famous for making iPhones, they just tried to set up a plant in India. They spent you know billions on this plant. They've spent years trying to do it. They've just announced the withdrawn because they can't make it work. You, you know, you can't just like flick a, a switch. There's no kind of 
Ford plant in Detroit anymore that you can just turn a switch and say, okay, now we're going to make like bombers and fighter jets. It, it just doesn't, it, it, you know, it's not like that anymore. But before you respond, I would like to invite Tinksorg in and you and Edmund can have a brief uh, debate for the next, say, eight minutes between the two of you. And um, uh, Tinksorg, let us hear your um, caustic and uh, withering uh, retort to this point. Well, I guess I would just say that in terms of where the U.S. is, uh, there was this controversy recently with the um, CEO of Raytheon, like one of the big five U.S. defense contractors, where he said that, uh, you know, decoupling from China was impossible. China and the U.S. had to learn how to live together because this is a codependent relationship and China is just too important. And people were just really pissed off. Um, I saw a lot of people, like a lot of blue checks, a lot of people inside the swamp, including Elbridge Colby and, and others, basically saying that, okay, well, if Raytheon, one of the big five U.S. defense contractors, says that they say that they can't make their own production lines work without China, uh, we can just tell the Department of Defense to you know, like not give any more contracts to Raytheon until they find someone else, you know, shift their production lines back to the U.S. And I think this just kind of illustrates that, like a lot of Americans are just stuck in this bargaining phase of dealing with, you know, a loss, essentially. Because there's no, there's no American rare earths industry to fall back on. Like all of these things that Raytheon was reliant on from China, there are no American alternatives. And what's worse, like defense contracts aren't exactly a buyer's market. The U.S. has a couple of defense contractors left after it slaughtered like 80% of them in the 90s. And like all of this talk about the U.S. economy being so surprisingly resilient and so on, like I think at this point, in terms of actual, like the actual manufacturer widgets, this is just a huge cope. Like all of the people like making missiles are telling you, you can't make missiles inside the US. It's not impossible. And then you have people working for think tanks and going to like business school or whatever saying, oh no, dude, all we have to do is just tell these few defense contractors we have left. Uh, like, you know, make the missiles in America or you're fired. And so what I'm getting with this is just that, like, in terms of the actual physical reality of U.S. production and so on, like, no, you, you really can't, you can't cut China off. Like, it's not possible, especially seeing as China manufactures the machine tools you would need in order to, you know, build production lines in the U.S., so, like, this was just one sort of incident in this long line of incidents showing that, like, the U.S. economy, you can't just reindustrialize at the snap of a finger. That's never how it's been done. Okay, Edmund, do you, do you want to respond to that? Because I think it's important that we kind of have these views challenged. Um, otherwise, it becomes an echo chamber. And I think the process of challenging the views is a useful way of exploring them more. So, Edmund, what, how would you respond to that, sir? Sure. Yeah, that was a 
yeah, very intelligent set of um, set of propositions. I, I I used to be a big fan of the What's Left podcast, uh, so, so I'm uh, also been following what you've been saying about Mersheimer and Colby, and I find it all very interesting because I think that we do need to have a critique of realism. I think realism is limited. Um, and I, I, I have a bit of an affinity for Marxism in, in, in domestic economics. When it comes to geopolitics, my fear is this, that I think as Mersheimer pointed out about 18 years ago now, that if China continues to rise economically, as this discussion has explored, that economic power will inevitably be translated into military power. And this isn't going to end. That China will not stop. You must understand that as China continues to rise, it is going to do exactly what America did in the 19th century, which is try to gain control over its hemisphere. And America was rational to do this, just as Germany was rational to seek hegemony in the first half of the 20th century. But you can't have more than one hegemon. You can if it's a Cold War, but that was a very special situation that we were in after World War II. This situation is much more like the prelude to World War I, or much more like the prelude to World War II. And I think if we don't isolate China from the world economy, not just using the strength of the American economy, but also by making alliances with all these other countries that production can be shored to, Vietnam, India, you name it. It, Russia, too. America needs to make an alliance with Russia and end this pointless war that is verging on nuclear conflict. It needs to focus on China. The thing is with Colby, he, he has a lot of focus on the military aspect, but I kind of want to focus on the economic aspect too. And Mersheimer points to this. Uh, it's the hegemonic, uh, what I call the hegemonic trap or the Thucydides trap. When you have a rising power that confronts a ruling power, you get war. That's happened most of the times in the past five, six hundred years. And I, I, I do think that if we don't stop China, if we don't isolate it from the world economy, then we're in really, really big trouble. Can, can I just say uh, one, one quick thing here, though? Yeah, um, yeah, sure. And then I'll ask uh, Edmund one thing, and then we'll bring in some other speakers because yeah. uh, France has had his hand up for a while, and we've got the mellifluous carbon mic as well. Well, regarding like the military, like what you have to understand it is that it's it's basically already too late, in the sense that there's this narrative about the U.S. where it's like the U.S. was at a low point after Vietnam, and then you know it turned inward and found its strength through Reagan and so on. And then it stormed back onto the global scene and was like a, like a firebird, a, a phoenix, rising from its own ashes and becoming stronger than ever. Like, this is just a huge lie. The U.S. story in, ter- in military terms has been one of constant decline since the Vietnam War. In Vietnam, the U.S. had a cap- capability to produce, like, 10,000 modern airframes and lose them all in Vietnam. Um, But the cracks were already starting to show there. Like they had to cancel Operation Linebacker 2, I think, because they were losing too many bombers and they had already sort of um, shuttered the production line. So every bomber they lost, they couldn't make a new one. And like since then, the US military has become progressively weaker and weaker and weaker. It took like all the Jews the U.S. Army had, like all of the stop loss, uh, drafting National Guardsmen, sending them to Fallujah and so on, in order for the U.S. to hold on to its position in Iraq. 
And everyone in D.C. today knows that the U.S. military is so weak that it couldn't possibly dream of invading Iraq again. Like the 2004 invasion of Iraq, it can't be repeated. The U.S. is much weaker. So, like, when you're saying that we're, we're heading for this sort of military confrontation with a rising power versus, like, a, a hegemon, that's not actually the reality. The reality is that the U.S. could only appear so strong as it did, uh, and, and people didn't really have to think about the decline in absolute terms because there was no other competitor. The moment the competitor showed up, like this four decades of basically the U.S. eating its own seed corn and sort of shrinking its military, making it more weak, making it less flexible and so on, like... It, it, it was it was over before it even began, as like the internet memes say. I don't really think it's realistic to hope that by economic warfare you can basically make up for the fact that the U.S. is this like on its own terms uh, growing weak enough that it really can't hold on to hegemony over like the entire globe. Um, I just want to ask uh, Edmund a question. You might want to respond to what Tinksorg said and then perhaps uh, this point as well. Um, I actually, uh, you know, generally agree with you more than I think Philip and, and, uh, and Tinksorg do, Edmund, uh, with regard to things like the Thucydides trap and what's happening and, and how China is naturally going to want to build a larger military. It's naturally going to want to be able to set the terms of trade and the terms of diplomacy in its own neighborhood at least. And then once it is able to do that, that would make its own neighborhood as safe as the U.S.'s neighborhood is now. And that would then ultimately allow the U.S. to uh, the, allow China to compete, not as the global hegemon, but on equal terms to the U.S. We'd have a, a genuine bipolar world at that stage, absent the rise of any other powers. But I think in your analysis with regard to, you know, we have to put a stop to China, there's something missing here. And the missing point is that in the Thucydides trap, it's always the status quo powers that feel the need to uh, challenge the rising powers. It's always the status quo powers who are reluctant to adapt to the changing conditions. And this is exactly what we're seeing here. There is, in fact a reasonable uh, deal, a kind of a grand bargain, if you like, to be done between the US and China. But for obvious reasons, or as I see as obvious anyway, the US doesn't want to do that because it's in a great position now, geostrategically. It's in an amazing position. Why on earth would it want to back down from that? The only reason to back down from that really is to see the writing on the wall and say, listen, rather than going down this path that we've done time and time again, we are going to back down a little bit and accept China's rise, rather as Britain did with the US. But the difference between Britain and its decision to back down from empire from the US in the face of the US rise and the US decision now is that Britain was a defeated and bankrupt country and it was kind of forced to accept reality. Whereas the U.S. simply isn't as yet. But I think that's what's missing from your analysis, really, Edmund, is that in the Thucydides trap, it's Sparta that attacks Athens, right? It, it's, I mean, it, it's, the, it's the status quo power 
that attacks the or, or, or seeks to challenge the rise of the uh, challenger power, essentially. Um, so I don't know if you just want to quickly respond to that, and then we'll move on to Franz, who's had his hand up for ages, and perhaps we'll bring in, as I said, the mellifluous carbon mic. Sure, yeah. So um, I think that uh, on Athens versus Sparta, like Plato, I, I'm definitely on Sparta's side because Athens kills Socrates. Um, but that aside, I, I think that the point you raise is very important. Uh, and the point that Malcolm raises is important too, uh, and also the point that Philip raised on, on the economy. Uh, these are all problems with containing China. Uh, the difficulty is that you know, that America has used a lot of expenditure wastefully on fictitious conflicts like Iraq or more recently with Ukraine. America has a habit of doing this. And Merschleimer has an explanation for this. The explanation is that since America defeated Germany in the Soviet Union, it's been kind of been complacent about a new hegemonic challenger, but paranoid about almost everything else. So instead of having major power wars, we have minor power wars, where America picks fights from smaller countries, and Vietnam definitely anticipates this. Now, Mersheimer was opposed to the Iraq war. Uh, Kissinger was for it. Mersheimer was against it. And it's Mersheimer who's being you know, slandered by the liberal media now for saying we should make an alliance with Russia. And I think that Mersheimer is still fundamentally right that if we allow China to continue to rise, it will not be like America and Britain. It will be like Germany rising, and it could plausibly be worse. The reason is that we don't live in a world where, I mean, the thing is with America and Britain, Germany was rising too. That's one of the reasons why America and Britain didn't fight each other, because they were busy worrying about Germany. China is the rising power now. And the, the worry I have, and I think the worry that somebody like Alexander Dugan has too, is that if China, if China's survival depends on it expanding through the world, through both economic and military means, then I'm not sure if the survival of the Chinese state in its current form is really worth everyone fighting for. Because if it comes at the expense of the lives of Chinese people, American people, and pretty much everyone else, then it's not worth committing to that. And it's worth starting to ask questions about how far we're willing to go. After World War II, we divided Germany up in order to prevent a third world war. That was the right thing to do. In order to stop World War III, it is worth considering dividing China up, however ridiculous that might sound. Because if we don't consider it, then we won't go nearly far enough. If we don't consider the end game, then we won't take the steps, the first steps that are worth taking. And I think Kanye West was right to say in December, that we have to kick China out of the WTO. Because if we don't, then World War Three will be the least of our worries, I think. Well, that's fairly doomsterish. I would hope that we are um, wise enough to deal with the rise of China in a more, um, uh, to find a more peaceful way of accommodating China, shall I we say? I promise you there isn't, there is not any way <laughs> other than this. I promise you, I promise you this. Okay, well, well thank, in that you, case, thank you for the promises, yeah. Evelyn. Thank you. <laughs> uh, okay, there well, are many look, reasons uh, for it. There are many look, reasons for it. <laughs> Ed, Edmund, thank you so much for your comment. We very much appreciate it. But we've had thank Franz, you. who's had his hand up for probably half an hour or so now. His digital hand is probably aching. So, Franz, what do you have to say, sir? Well, thank you so much for taking my question. Uh, first off, I just want to say I've been 
uh, actually a big fan of your guys' podcast. I want to say I found you guys back in uh, April. So after seeing you guys engage with uh, uh, Edbridge Ed Colby. So my question is with regards to, let's just say, under the scenario that like our politicians aren't the best and that they do get us in a quagmire with China and the South China Sea, what have you seen is going to be the uh, reaction if they do send a carrier strike group there and it gets destroyed? Aware, how does the U.S. escalate, or do you think that they would de-escalate in that situation? And also on this point, uh, I think Collingwood. I saw you on Twitter raise the question about what would the U.S. and European Europe's reaction be if we do see Ukrainian lines crumble and Russia, let's just say, uh, re uh, gets a breakthrough and starts taking territory faster than the Ukrainians can stop it. Uh, what is your guys' uh, take on what NATO's response would be in that situation, especially with what Philip was saying, where the U.S. has drawn this red line? Um, and I'm very happy that Malcolm's in here as well, because I know that he's been talking about the U.S. reaction to a carrier strike group uh, getting destroyed. So I appreciate all your guys' input. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, look, I, um, I, I'll just answer quick, very briefly first, and then let the more serious intellect take over, uh, especially since uh, Tinksorg kind of disagrees with me on a lot of these things. But um, look, if, if, the, you know, if the U.S. sent a carrier group through the Strait of Taiwan in, in the same way that they did during the Clinton administration, um, I think it would be a very nervy moment. Uh, especially if the Chinese decided to draw a red line and say no, and then the U.S. felt that they couldn't back down. Um, in the past, that has tended to happen during, anyway, uh, moments of uh, quite serious cross-straits tensions. I think I, th I think the Clintons, the, the the Clinton administration did it after the Chinese responded to uh, the U.S. Sell selling Taiwan a certain class of weapons. I forget now which one, but anyway. Um, I would hope that nothing would happen over that. But let's say, for example, that there is a war between uh, China and Taiwan. Uh, the U.S. decide to respond by airlifting weapons and maybe trying to get involved themselves. And the um, Chinese managed to sink an entire carrier strike group and destroy a large portion of U.S. forward bases in the region, places like uh, Guam and the Philippines and Okinawa. Um, then I would be extremely nervous about the prospect that the U.S. would feel that they had to respond and the only means in that scenario that they would have to respond would be nuclear weapons. That is, you know, if, if their forward bases have been destroyed, if their carrier strike groups have been destroyed, you know, they, they would no longer have the con conventional means to respond. The, 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 there would be a desire to respond. The usual... U.S. response is to destroy the airfields from whence the attack came. Uh, they would have no means to do that with the ports unless with nuclear weapons. I think there would be a hysterical reaction in the U.S. There would be a huge amount of stress and pressure on the government, um, and therefore nuclear weapons would not be off the table as utterly insane as that would be. Um, Tinksorg disagrees with me, and I'll let him in later. Again, I, with regard to Ukraine at the moment, I, you know, I think it's fairly clear now that the Ukrainian counteroffensive has failed. I think it's also starting to dawn on people that 
the West is starting to run short of the of material, not necessarily will to support Ukraine, but just physical stuff to send them. It's starting to run short. And at the same time, Ukraine is starting to run into manpower issues as well. Um, now, I think that this war has shown that the balance of land war has switched more to the defense. The reasons for that are for another podcast, but it involves things like all forces now are mechanized, uh, missiles and drones are now ubiquitous and increasingly inexpensive, um, ISR, uh, intelligence reconnaissance and, and, and surveillance systems make the battlefield transparent. I think all of those conspire to make defense a lot easier um, in relation to attack. So I think it would be very difficult for the Russians to start, you know, huge big arrow thrusts that were really starting to roll up the Ukrainian defenses. Um, however, it's not impossible, given the current situation. It, it might well be that Ukraine's situation is more precarious than we thought. It might be that the West and Ukraine refuse to see the writing on the wall and negotiate some kind of settlement. Uh, and it might be that Russia decides to you know, bite the proverbial bullet and mobilize and put together a big force and train them and start, you know, really rolling things up. In that scenario, again, I would be quite nervous, but I, I, I you know, I tend to think that ultimately the West would probably negotiate a solution. And I tend to think that Russia would prefer in that scenario to give them an off-ramp like the Golden Bridge, so to speak. But obviously this is hypothetical. I'm not saying that this is going to happen before people start screaming at me, no, 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 it's Russia that needs the Golden Bridge. No, I'm just saying in that scenario. So that, very briefly, are my two responses to that, friends. Um, I'll invite Tink's organ uh, briefly, but then I'd also I actually like to ask Philip Pilkington. No, can, can, I just, can I just say something on that? Not long, yeah. because... This is a long-standing uh, uh, bit of a debate between the multipolarity hosts. So it's kind of good that we we try not to debate too much on the show. So it's kind of fun. I'd only I, look. I'd only add to that that um, okay, if a, if a conflict broke broke out in the South China Sea, would I be, shall we say, looking for an Airbnb in a remote area? Yeah, probably. Honestly, I mean, the risk would be enormous at that point. On the other hand, and I'm sure Tinksor can give a better answer than this, but I just highlight that. As much as the world looks chaotic a lot of the time, the people in charge of this stuff are, I won't say smart because they make so many mistakes and I think loads of them are foreseeable, but they have a basic strategic picture of the world and they know what nuclear war means. And I think most of them know that a so-called quote-unquote limited nuclear strike on Chinese air bases, I think they know that that escalates to uh, China nuking Guam or Hawaii and then and then it's cities next. So the, the thing is that when, at the very least, when they're sitting there and they go, oh dear, a carrier a battle group's just sunk. This looks terrible. There's photos of it everywhere. And they say, okay, let's tactically nuke the airfields. They know that they're sacrificing maybe Guam and Hawaii. And then they know that after that, the bull will be in their court to go after a city. And then an American city will get hit. So all that stuff is gamed out by military people, civil servants, and so on. So they know what's going to happen. So I just highlight that, that they're not, they're not flying blind here. Well, look, um, yeah, I, I, I don't necessarily disagree with that. I just think it, the, the, the kind of stress and pressure of the situation means it's not off the table. But now you're here. I think it's a nice opportunity. Like, we always talk about how the war would go, you know, like boys' own guys, you know, have got a battleship here and a 
aircraft carrier there and these guys have got these cool missiles and these guys have got this fantastic anti-air de- defense and like who's going to win this great battle I, i'm actually quite interested in what the economic effect would be on a um on the world the same like the you know but certainly the west and china as well on the outbreak of a war or a situation where ukraine really starts to escalate because people can't let go um what kind of economic consequences, Philip, would you say? Because this is something that people don't ever seem to want to talk about. No, and that's the difference with nuclear war. I'm fairly convinced. Look, I don't have access to the minds of the leaders or anything. But from from the, from the behavior, you can infer, economists call it reveal preferences, that I don't think they fully understand the economic ramifications of this. Not that the economists don't, although they're catching up. <laughs> they're trying to catch up very quickly. Um, but the, the, the foreign policy people don't seem to have a conception of the economy. They, they seem to think of the economy like they think about war, sanctions, punch the eye in the face, he'll punch you back, he can't punch as hard, who punches harder? It's a very primitive way of viewing the economy, a very primitive way of viewing the world in a lot of ways. And I'm fairly convinced that they do not understand this component of it. It is just not widely discussed. It needs to be. And whatever they call it, geoeconomics or something, they need to start teaching that at Harvard Kennedy Business School or whatever, or Kennedy Government School or whatever it's called. It needs to start because in the event of a conflict with China, I'm fairly sure that the U.S. economy will collapse. And I say that for two reasons, very simple reasons. First of all, China holds an enormous amount of U.S. government debt and foreign exchange reserves. If they want, they can dump them onto the market. That means that the U.S. bond market goes out of control and the dollar collapses. That's a recipe for hyperinflation. Now add to that that supply chains will be cut off and nothing can get built. We, we saw limited supply chain shortages in the pandemic, and it wreaked havoc on the manufacturing sector. It's where the beginning of the inflation came from. But there were also shortages and everything. Think of that times 200, because the trade would just stop. So parts for machines would stop turning up. Basic materials. If you think gallium and germanium are bad, wait until there's not enough like steel or something like that. Like that, that's what you call a, 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 demand, a supply side contraction. That's what we saw when the French took the Ruhr Valley, which precipitated, was one of the precipitating factors in the Weimar hyperinflation. So that component of it is not well understood. But it's getting a little bit more discussion after we've been putting it out there, I think. But it's bad, really bad. And that I could see happening. Now, can I say something here? Because this, please um, do. Yeah, what you bring up here, Philip, which is the fact that like all of these decision makers have very little idea of how it will impact the economy, like that being one of the real risks of a war, because the information is not fully known. So you kind of have to, you know, take a stab in the dark, essentially. And sometimes you're far too optimistic. And it turns out that actually, maybe the American economy isn't quite as autarkic as some people in D.C. believe. Uh, You don't really have that risk with nuclear weapons um, for a couple of reasons. The first of which is like the the American DOD from, from everyone I've talked to with, you know, a security clearance and so on. Uh, from from what they're saying, like, you know, nuclear weapons, tactical or otherwise, are not even part of, like, war plans over Taiwan because to, like, military war planners, these nuclear weapons, they're not particularly useful in any sort of way. Um, and you also have to add the fact that, like, 
Uh, one person I talked to expressed it thusly, uh, nuclear weapons are for think tankers to hyperventilate over. Um, they occupy a much greater spot in the imagination for like intellectuals than they do for actually actual sort of military men. And you also have to factor in that sort of tactical nuclear weapons are just kind of a meme. They're like almost like self-destruct devices on, on villain basis or whatever in science fiction. Like it's a thing that technically does exist. So America has two kinds of, of tactical nuclear weapons. The first kind is basically you have a nuclear submarine and then you have, you know, an intercontinental ballistic missile, but the nuclear warhead on that ICBM is about, you know, 4% to the strength of a normal warhead. So it's like seven kilotons instead of 420. You can see some practical difficulties with using these sorts of weapons in a tactical role because you're using a nuclear ICBM launched from a nuclear submarine hitting an enemy city. I guess you could just call them up in advance and say, well, don't worry about this particular nuclear missile. It's only like 7% as strong as like the really strong nuclear missiles. And maybe the Chinese will listen, but there's not much difference between... Like, maybe the Chinese don't believe you when you say, oh, no, this nuke is completely safe. Uh, but if you don't want to actually use nuclear ICBMs uh, as a tactical measure, you could use gravity bombs. You know, you could fly an F-16 or something, or an F-18 or, sorry, F-16, whatever. Like, you could fly one of those planes without stealth and just physically drop the bomb on a Chinese port. Um, but like these, these weapons are stored inside the U.S. They're not stored in Japan. They're not at Kadena or or anywhere else. Like people don't really want a bunch of tactical nuclear missiles or nuclear bombs sitting around. So nuclear gravity bombs are not essentially like weapons that are very conducive to spur of the moment decisions. Because even if you're an American politician, you're under a lot of stress. Blah blah blah. It's gonna take maybe 48 hours before you're actually ready to drop that thing on a city. And if you have 48 hours, you probably have some time to think, like, is this a good idea or not? So this space of, like, radical uncertainty, it doesn't really exist in terms of, like, tactical nuclear weapons. It's not some button you press and then, you know, something, an alien or whatever, and UFO drops a tactical nuclear weapon in five minutes. And you have all of this space for optimism, thinking, oh, well, it's just a tactical one. Uh, the Chinese are going to be scared or cowed or whatever. Like, in, in some ways, nuclear war is a very real possibility, but it's not going to happen because people say, well, we have these super smart like nuclear weapons that are kind of like nukes, but kind of not. Like, they're really easy to use. They're really convenient and so on. And, and like, there's no, no drawbacks. No, if people use nuclear weapons, if the Americans use nuclear weapons, it's because they want a nuclear war. Um, that's, that's really the only possibility that I can see. Can I respond to that? Um, look, Edmund, I'd, uh, just before people uh, come in... Uh, Philip is going to be uh, have to leave in about five minutes, and um, 
we are also recording this episode of Spaces, and we're going to put it live tomorrow as, as, as this week's episode of our podcast. So what I would like to do is I would like um, Philip to offer some kind of uh, concluding remarks, uh, basically commenting on the sort of trends that we should expect to see. And then he'll drop out, and anybody who wants to stay for another half hour, 45 minutes with me uh, can continue to do so. But this part will just be part of the spaces, not part of the, the podcast proper. So if, if you, Edmund, and, and Carp and Mike can just, um, can just hold your horses for you know, five minutes, we'll get Philip to finish off. I'll do a little outro to the podcast section and then we can move on. Philip, um, where do you see the situation going? What are the risks, uh, generally speaking, and what sort of things can we expect over, say, the next decade in general terms? Um, I don't have my amazing crystal ball with me, so I'm going to dodge the question slightly. I'm not a big predictor guy. Um, I worked in financial markets for a long time. I know how hard prediction is, especially when you see it lose money. So I'm not actually into predictions. I like kind of like seeing the lay of the land and seeing what the risks are. I think that's much more, um, much more sober way of doing business in anything, really. Um, I just say this as a kind of a broad um, overview or, you know, because we're talking about the multipolarity framework. Um, there's two things that's going on today, right now, at this moment, you don't need to predict anything. Um, change is accelerating extremely rapidly and extremely unpredictably. I don't, again, have tentacles into every decision maker's mind or every intelligence agency's mind or anything like that. But I think what's happening in Africa is a surprise to most people, especially how quickly it's happened. They probably thought that there was a risk there. I'm not an expert on the region. I don't know anything about it. But they probably thought there was a risk there. But looks to me from the response like it was a surprise. So the first thing we're going to be dealing with are a lot of surprises, okay? A lot of uncertainty. A lot of things are going to happen very quickly. Now, you can, you can, you can determine risk factors. You can determine, um, how should I put it? Uh, forces, powers of forces. So I'll just give an example, a random example. Today, Turkey's uh, inflation rate started going up again. It had been going down for quite a while. Vladimir Putin is visiting Ankara later this month. That rising inflation rate gives the Russians a card in their deck for the uh, negotiations because they effectively control the capital account because of the huge energy exports that they give to Turkey. Stuff like that is interesting to watch because people don't really pay attention to it. Um, the other thing I'd say is the problem right now isn't actually that people are making bad predictions, although they're making terrible predictions, like really bad ones. But the real problem is that they're just not framing the world properly. understand how extensive these changes are. They don't understand any of that. And so the real key, if you want to get ahead of the game here, is just accept what's going on and say that world, we left behind a world 18 months ago and it's not coming back. Going to be a lot of changes. It's all moving in a pretty chaotic direction. And the way that you can best figure it out is understand the structures of everything. The structure of the US economy, the structure of the Western economies, the structure of the Russian economy, the Chinese economy. Some aspects of their military forces are probably good as well. And getting a fairly decent lay of the land on what's going on diplomatically. And if you can figure all that out, which isn't rocket science, you can just read newspapers, then you'll get a good sense of things. But I think it's really about kind of like 
people need to get into that structural mode. They need to have that perspective on the world. Because if you hold the perspective on the world from two years ago, you're done. Nothing's going to make sense to you, and it'll just pass you by. So, I mean, that's all I'd say. I'll, I'll leave it to you guys. Uh, hopefully everyone has a good chat. But, yeah, I have a hard out at uh, 7.30. Thanks, everyone, for joining, and apologies for leaving early. That's okay. Thank you so much, Philip. Um, those of you who are listening to the podcast version of this um, can listen to the overtime part of this uh, Gonzo live recording of the Multipolarity podcast by looking for at ADM Collingwood. And I will pin this space to my newsfeed and I'll also retweet it on the Multipolarity podcast uh, Twitter page as well, which is multipolar pod at multipolar pod. We are fresh from a huge victory.